Good evening and welcome to the Adventures Club of Los Angeles. I'm your host tonight, Rich Mayfield, number 1211, and we're here tonight with Jim Dorsey, number 1081. Did I get that right? You got it right. Great. So, I reminded everybody watching, thank you for watching by the way, this is live, you can comment on, uh, on the side there, and we'll see your comments, and there's a Q&A session at the end, so if you have anything you want to ask Jim, um, put your comment or questions in, in the um, comment section, and we'll get to those at the end of the program. Also, if you love this channel, like and subscribe, like always, right? Those subscribes help us out, so subscribe to our channel, and watch, right? So, Jim, you are here tonight to talk about three, I guess, very significant expeditions you did into Africa. Career-defining, yeah. Career-defining, life-changing, <laughs> some pretty, pretty adventure-worthy things, right? All trips that ended differently than they started out and as was hoped they would be. <laughs> so let's get right to it. The year was 2007, and James Dorsey was off to where? Mali, West Africa. So all these trips were to Mali, or to, to West Africa, or Africa. Uh, I went tonight, yes. Okay, well, tonight. These we're going to try to focus yeah. on these three. Yeah. So you're off to Mali and in 2007. And I Pierre Odier. Another, Another club member. Great member of the club, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, a person who, when you travel with him, every day becomes a learning experience. Yeah, I hear he's a pretty storied traveler. Oh. There's no words. I mean, the man's knowledge of, of vanishing in remote cultures is unparalleled. So, real quick, if Pierre, you're watching, right here, Andy, right here. <laughs> Pierre, Pierre, we want you on this show, too. So, if you're, if, you're, if you're interested, come on out. All right, sorry. That was just our plug to get Pierre out here. I hope you get him. So, so you're traveling with Pierre in 2007 yeah. in Mali. What are you guys off to do? Uh, we started in uh, Bamako, which was the capital city, and we drove through the Bandiagara Escarpment to see the Dogon people. Okay. But uh, my main goal was to go into the Sahara and see the Blue Men, because I was fascinated by them. For 2,000 years, they've uh, controlled the Trans-Saharan camel caravan routes that travel from North Africa down to Timbuktu. And they've hauled gold, salt, and slaves, and they still are slaves, yes, today. So these are the blue men. The blue men, they're, uh, they're, actually, they're Berbers. Okay. And the particular tribe are Tuaregs. Okay. And they do wear blue from head to foot, robes, and uh, a long head wrap that's called a tagelmust. But uh, they're not called blue for that reason. They get the blue ink from sea urchins, and huh. they work it into their fabric to get the indigo color. And uh, it's toxic. Yeah, uh, prolonged wearing it permeates the pores of the skin and literally turns it blue. Wow! So, so actually, the the, the robes that they're wearing poison them, poison them over their lifetimes. It, it, yes, they have a rather short lifespan compared to most people. But what what is their lifespan? Oh, I, I believe it's mid forties. Wow! And and most of it's because of the toxicity of the dye. That's a lot of it, but it's also a very harsh um, living in the right. middle of the Sahara. So your goal was to cross the Sahara and, and, and to kind of find these people and basically figure yeah, out what they're about? We didn't cross the entire Sahara. We, we started in uh, Timbuktu and we drove 100 miles north to an abandoned foreign legion outpost called Erawan. And it was also a, a watering hole for the camel caravans. And mm -hmm. that was our goal. And once we got there, 
we hooked up with a couple of Tuaregs and we rode our camels in a big wide arc about 120 miles uh, back into Timbuktu, stopping in as many nomad camps as we could just to live as they did and see how they do it. So what do the, the trails look like? Like, did you know where these nomad camps were, or did you kind of have to find them? You no, said there's no trails. You didn't arc. <laughs> there's no roads. <laughs> but there's no, like, there's no path cut in the dirt or anything? Or? No, but the, the Tuaregs said uh, they navigate by smelling the wind. They look at the shape of the sand dunes, and, and they know where they are. Hmm. In fact, one of them told me he, he doesn't always know where he is, but he's never lost because hmm. it's his home, it's his backyard. He knows the Sahara like I know the city. So. And did, did you learn how they did this? Or well, was it a lifetime of learning. Um, but at night, they would point out constellations. They had their own names for them. Uh, uh -huh. And they would tell stories about what, what the stars told them. So at night, it was easy to navigate. During the day, it's a little more difficult. So the, the constellations, that's interesting. They said they had their own names for them. Do they pick the same group of stars that, that like, we know, like in Western culture, I guess? Or is it different groups altogether? I'm not that familiar with the constellations, so I couldn't tell you that. Like the Big Dipper, for instance. Yeah, I don't recall seeing any that I recognized, uh, perhaps Orion, but that was a different part of the world. I'm not really sure what we saw. Huh. But they would point, and they would tell a story about it. Yeah, I mean, it aids in the memory, right? Mm -hmm. What else do you have to do? And so were the stars pretty pretty amazing at night? In oh, Sarah? Yeah. yeah, there's no pollution, there's no lights, there's nothing. It's just you and blackness. Wow. So you so you how many how many tribes do you think you encountered in this arc? You said you did a hundred and twenty mile arc uh, in the desert. Well they were all Tuaregs, but different clans. We probably stopped at seven or eight nomad camps, probably a hundred different people along the way. Mm -hmm. Lots of women and children. Fascinated that the children made toys out of whatever detritus they could find in the desert. They made an entire train out of old uh, soda pop bottles. Hmm. They made wheels, they made seats, they made cars. And they're very inventive people. And uh, anytime we finished a water bottle, they would beg for it. Yeah. They, nothing, is, nothing was wasted. So how were you received when, when, you, when you rolled up on these tribes? That was the interesting thing. When I first approached this fellow, I, I met him on the internet. He was recommended by a friend who had been there. And I wrote to him. We had a long correspondence before uh, I, we ever went over there. And in fact, I, I planned this whole trip. Pierre said, I'll go. You, you put it together. Hmm. Uh, now, oh wait, I lost the original question. <laughs> no, no, how are, how are you, how are you receiving? Oh, I were, that was the interesting thing, because I was wondering how they would, because they're basically... Uh, Is this for me, Andy? It's for you, and uh, turn off your law. Okay, sorry. That's all right. Technical difficulty. Most of them follow Islam, and I didn't know how they would react to a white Christian uh, coming into their midst, but... They told me they were proud that we wanted to learn about their lifestyle, and they embraced us wholeheartedly. And they dressed us in their own robes. They put us on their camels. We rode, we ate, we slept. We became Tuaregs for several days. So you spent a couple of days with each? Each tribe? Uh, I don't remember exactly how long. We were in Mali about a month altogether. Oh, okay. So, so the purpose of the trip 
for you was what? Like, what was your goal when you started out? Well, I just thought these were some of the most exotic and remote people I had ever heard about, and I wanted to go see it. And that kind of whet my appetite because, you know, Pierre was into vanishing civilizations, and he introduced me to all of this. And the more people I met, the more fascinated I became and just started immersing myself in it. And I kind of look at that as my second big uh, jump into that genre. Hmm. The first would have been the Northwest Coast uh, tribal people, but th that's a whole other story. So yeah, your first, your first book that you have displayed here is Vanishing Tales from Ancient Trails. Right? Yeah. So, so you're very much interested in, the, in these tribes that um, are kind of off the beaten path and I guess are vanishing now. Right? Well, that was it. The, they're not going to be around forever and most of them have no written language. Okay. The Tuaregs speak something called Tamashek, although since it's West Africa, most of them also speak French, mm -hmm. which was good for us because Pierre was fluent in French and I'm not. At least someone could communicate, right? Yeah, yeah. So do you know what the status of the Tuareg people is now? Because this was 2007, right? So right. Let's say years later. Al-Qaeda moved into Mali mm -hmm. um, a couple of years after we left. The first thing they did was they blew up the 300 sacred Sufi shrines in Timbuktu. French peacekeepers were called in. Uh, there was an underground railroad trying to ferret out the manuscripts from the libraries of Timbuktu, and the Tuaregs were burying these out in the desert, trying to save them because uh, uh, Al-Qaeda would have destroyed it all. And at one time, Timbuktu had the greatest library on earth next to Alexandria. Hmm. Um, tens of thousands of manuscripts there. So they were smuggling these out in what, what year, like 2009? Uh, uh, well, yeah, they were starting then. It, Moving them out in the desert on Al-Qaeda had not moved in in force at that point. Mm -hmm. But people saw what was the writing on the wall, and they were trying to get some of these treasures out of the city. Because like I said, as soon as they came in, they blew up three, 300 shrines. Huh. Just utter devastation. And today... Uh, the fellow who was our guide on this trip, I've kind of lost touch with him. I know he ended up in a refugee camp in Burkina Faso after Al-Qaeda. Then I heard from him where he, had, he was living in Denver and he'd married an American woman. <laughs> really? Yeah. And that was the last I've heard from him. Well, I mean, Denver's a nice area, right? I hope made out pretty well there. The whole story about how he got there, but I don't know it. <laughs> so, you met, so your guide, you met him on the Internet. Yeah. And you, you first met up with him. In Bamako. In Bamako. Yeah. That's yeah, cool. he was about six foot seven or eight, and when he put his tagalmust on, which is the 30-yard wrap they wear on top of their head because it's an all-purpose clothing item, Yeah. he's still over seven feet tall. He, Jeez. He's gigantic. That is gigantic. And yeah. And, uh, did, and did you guys ride camels? Oh, yeah. I think we have a picture of that, right, Andy? Yeah, yeah that's the cover of the book. This is my second book. And, uh, yeah. Well, we, I mean, we drove from Bamako. So this is you on this camel? Uh, that's me, yeah. In the blue? Uh-huh. The toxic And I have those robes. What did you say the toxic chemical was? That It's the ink of sea urchins. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Where do they get those? They import them. Huh. Uh, Mali is landlocked. Right. But uh, if you go into the markets there, you can find anything you want. You can find whale bones. You can find... Uh, uh, and when did they start doing blue as a color? As far as I know, they were mentioned by Herodotus uh, way back when in Greek history. Uh, they were called the, the purple people, the Canaanites, is what Herodotus uh, referred to them first as. So this truly is like an ancient, very ancient, ancient 
tribe, a couple thousand years, route right. across across the desert. And when we left, French oil companies were surveying and sending in uh, aerial reconnaissance on these camel caravan routes. So I don't know what's going on there now. I've lost touch. I'm I'm afraid to find out. What what? So the French oil companies they are just scouting out these routes? Yeah. They like, can you see them from the air? Because I, I asked earlier about like if you could see a trail in the dirt. No, no trails, no trails, no. But they would set off explosive charges and then um, you know monitor the, the shock waves and then right. they would send planes over to survey from the air. They were using old biplanes at the time and the Tuaregs were terrified of these. When, when one would fly over, the Tuaregs would fall to the ground and cover their head because uh, huh. to them it was an evil spirit up in the air. Nothing could fly. Yeah, a biplane, huh? Right, yeah, biplanes. But these guys had never seen them. What was their, you know, you mentioned that they had, that there was a abandoned French Foreign Legion post out there. Yeah. What did the French Foreign Legion, what, what were they up to out there? Well, uh, Mali used to be a French territory. Until uh -huh. 1964, they won their independence. So the Legion was all over the country, all over West Africa. Uh, and this is a very remote place. Uh, when we got there, it was just a bunch of crumbling adobe shacks in the middle of nowhere. Huh. But it was a major watering hole for the camel caravans, and we did see them, and we did travel with them a little bit. That's fascinating. Yeah, these, the ones we saw were hauling salt, big slabs of salt that are dug at the slave-operated mines at the, at the um, border with Mauritania. So still, still operated by slaves. Well, is there any sort of indentured servants? Okay. but slave is a better word for what they do, the way they live. De facto slave. Yes. So it may be thinly veiled as something else, but right. And these camels were hauling four slabs of two hundred pounds of salt each. So that is eight hundred pounds per camel plus whatever else they're carrying on their back. These are amazing animals. And. It's fascinating to me that that would still be economical. I thought salt was like so mass-produced, but, but they're literally pulling it out of the ground by hand and moving it via camel. In both, in both West and East Africa. I saw the same thing in Ethiopia. Huh. I wonder who they sell that to. In Africa, it's money in remote areas, just the salt itself. But uh, most of this was going to the port of Mopti in, in uh, Mali, most that I saw. They break down these big slabs into little one-foot squares, and they load them on barges and send them off. And they, does it just go into the world's salt supply? Got like, me does there. Norton's, Norton's table salt buy it? And I, I didn't follow it past the, the ports where it went after that. It, uh, it was on to the next, uh, next adventure. Did you hear about that, right? In, like, ancient times, salt was currency, and it was so valuable and everything. Yes. It was. But you don't think about, like, in the 20th century... 21st century, excuse me, that, that it would still be such a, like, it, it's a base commodity, right? Yeah, but uh, a great deal of the world is not in the 21st century. Hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of it is a couple thousand years ago. Yeah. So you said each of these expeditions, they started one way and they turned out a completely different way. Usually, yeah. So how, how did this change from the beginning to the end? Because the beginning, you, you were just out, you, you thought these people were you know, one of the most remote and exotic tribes that you've ever heard of, so you went out there to see them. Is that the gist of it? Yes, I did not expect to be practically adopted the way they treated us. Hmm. Um, I mean, they gave us fine animals to ride, they clothed us, they fed us. Uh, 
Uh, and, and we didn't pay that much money to go there. I mean, uh, they were fascinated with us, and they told us that they were honored that we wanted to learn about them and live as they did. That's so cool. Yes. So for those people, who are, I mean, that's, that's a true adventurer's club adventure, <laughs> right? Because I think a lot of people, you know, think that uh, you've got to be out, you've got, I don't know, it's got to be like a, uh, you got to have like some scientific mission or like a, a charter of some sort. But you and Pierre just wanted to see these people and learn more about them, and it was Pure your curiosity yeah, yeah. alone that, that brought you out there. The, the scientific uh, expeditions are more Explorers Club stuff. That's true. We're about adventure. And I think that is the difference between the Explorers that's the main, Club and the That's the main difference. Academic uh, field work is the, the basis of the Explorers Club, of which I'm a retired fellow now. Mm -hmm. uh, but here it's all about adventure. Right. So, yeah. So your second time, because you, you went back to Africa a couple of years later, right? Uh, 2010 was the, the one I, I was telling so, you about. So three years later, you're back in Africa, and where are you this time? Ethiopia. Ethiopia. I was invited by uh, Dr. Rosalie Lopez, who from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, who's uh -huh. been a supporter of this club forever. Yes, she's given lots of talks. Oh yeah, yeah. it's great. And uh, she wanted to take this expert. There were five planetary scientists plus Rosalie and her then-boyfriend, Ken Freund, who's a longtime member of our club, and my wife and I. And uh, she wanted to go to this volcano in the remote Ethiopian desert and make comparisons to a volcano she had studied on Jupiter's moon, Io. Because they're both shield volcanoes, meaning they're lava lakes rather than a cone. So this was a six-day in-and-out trip. To so this was like this was a scientific expedition. It was. But you weren't a scientist. I was not a scientist. I was the journalist. Okay. All right. So anyway, like I said, from start to finish, it was six days. We moved, and uh, what happened was my wife had lost an eye a week before the, the trip happened, oh. but she was not about to back out of it. But when we got to this place, uh, first of all, we had to cross into the land of the Afar people, which are, I found to be very feral. And uh, way back in 1935, there was records of them castrating anyone who came onto their land. And, and I still have newspaper reports stating this from the 50s. So these were really tough hombres. And uh, they're right on the Ethiopian, uh, uh, I can't think of the other country that broke away from them right now. Uh -huh. Anyway, they're given autonomy because they're such fierce people. Nobody the, wants to mess with them. Eritrea is the border. Eritrea. Eritrea borders the Red Sea. And so those countries give the Afar great autonomy because they believe they are so fierce they're keeping Al-Qaeda from crossing the Red Sea from Yemen into Africa there. They have to go further down to Somalia to get into Africa. How big is this tribe? The Afar? Uh-huh. A few thousand, I would imagine. They live in one of the most harshest deserts on Earth. It was 120 degrees 24-7 all the time. The temperature never falls. And... Uh, so anyway, we had to contract with these guys. We actually signed a written contract and we paid them money because they would not take us to see their volcano unless we hired one of them, a gunman, for each member of our expedition. I think there were seven of us. We hired seven afar. Every one of them was heavily armed and they were going to take us up this one, volcano. One gunman for each member of your yeah, party. Yeah, because they told us it was very dangerous. There were bandits there. 
<laughs> yeah, I was, I'm wondering, was that, is the one gunman for each person to protect you, or just in case the whole party got out of the line, they could well, that's what it we all were, and walk away. We were asking really ourselves that all, every every minute of the I day. I don't know why this gunman's always standing right behind me while I'm eating. Yeah, <laughs> it, that's true. That's true. So anyway, we paid our money, and they led us up this volcano. And I usually at the head of these things, and I was way behind. I was the last one to make it up there, and I was huffing and puffing, and I thought. Well, about 100 yards from the summit of the volcano, I collapsed, and I thought maybe I was having a heart attack because I couldn't breathe. And I was laying on the ground. I could feel the earth trembling under me because I'm on the side of this volcano. And suddenly, I'm being prodded by a rifle barrel, and it was my gunman. He had gone up ahead, and he hadn't seen me, so he came back, and he found me. And I thought, okay, is he going to kill me now or what? No, he got me on my feet, and he helped me get up to the summit to see the volcano. So he helped you out. He came, uh, he came back and he found me. Now, what was the relationship with these gunmen like aside from that one time? Because he, he, so, so he, he picked you up and helped you out. But like, what was it like in camp? Were these guys off on their own? or They weren't friendly. They didn't want us taking a lot of pictures. We, we took some and they would pose if we asked them. But they didn't want us just randomly shooting photos of them. Uh, these guys had hand grenades. You know? Do we have a picture of them? Did you, did you get... I not. I don't think it's one of these here, no. No, okay. Um, so they had hand grenades. They had hand grenades. They had big knives. Most of them had an AK-47. So it's a pretty isolated, and you said feral tribe, but they have modern implements of war. And they realize, see, some of the Afar dig salt for a living, and it's a brutal way to make a living. Others have discovered they have this volcano, which can be a cash cow by taking trekkers up to see it. And that's what they did for us. Um, we really didn't know what to expect. I mean, they, they kept their part of the bargain. We got to the summit. We saw the volcano. The next day, we're coming down. And uh, oh, I, I'm, I'm backtracking here. Since my wife had lost an eye, there wasn't any real trail going up the mountain. So it was pitch black at night when we climbed. So my wife rode a camel. And she got there way before I did. The next morning. Well, we had to leave early to get back to our camp, which was about 12 miles away. Uh, my wife wanted to walk because it was broad daylight and she had one good eye. We had only left the summit a short time when some shots rang out and we hit the dirt, which was all this uh, solidified magma. It was sharp as coral. Oh. It kind of shredded our skin. And when my wife stood up, she fell over. And I thought she'd been shot. Turned out her foot was caught in a crevasse and she had twisted her ankle. So just then, the guy who had the camel she rode up the previous day was coming down off the volcano. I flagged him down. I waved money in his face. I got, got her on the camel. We smacked it on the butt, and she went trotting down the mountain. Now, all this time, I'm having a lot of trouble breathing, but I got to walk 12 miles. There's no other way. So I get back. My, uh, when we got back to our camp, my body cramped into a fetal position, all my electrolytes were gone. Fortunately, yeah. Ken Freund was an EMT and he forced some dry Gatorade down my throat that revived me a little bit. Dry Gatorade? Yeah. Couldn't, you, you guys not have we water? We didn't have any water. We, we ran out. Oh, wow. It was brutal. It was brutal. I, that is the most physical, brutal trip I've ever been. So do you think that the breathing problems was purely just not having water and electrolytes? No, what I found out, uh, a week after we got back, I went to a dinner in New York, and then I led a group down to Mexico. So about a month later, 
my wife was still having pain in her leg and I was having trouble breathing. So we both went to the doctor. It turned out she had a broken leg all that time and she'd been walking on it for several Jeez. weeks. I had blood clots in my lungs and I never should have made it off the volcano. Jeez, that's crazy. Yep, although I didn't know it. Right, so the, everything turned out a little differently you than I thought. Tough son of a bitch. Uh, it took me a year. <laughs> it, it took a full year to recover from that. Yeah. Really? So, so what was the recovery like? Oh, it was just uh, imagine being physically drained. I lost fifteen pounds overnight. Uh, you know, I, I looked like a survivor of a concentration camp for a while. But you made it out of Africa. Oh yeah. So. So kind of same question I asked for your last expedition. You said it started one way, and it sounds like it started, uh, you know, you heard Rosalie Lopez from JPL was going to study a volcano in Ethiopia, mm -hmm. and you're like, hell yeah, I'm on board for that. That's right. So, it, so that's it, how it started. And it ended up survival. And it ended up a, a trip of survival. Mm -hmm. I bet you, didn't ex you expected it to be a leisurely stroll up the side, but then all this stuff happened to you and your wife. Exactly. Wow, that's crazy. Well, you know, she's hardier than I am, too. So where did... Where did this story end up? Because the main thing that you, you were focused on was, was that tribe, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the volcano was a destination, but, you know, the journey for you was... Yeah, I was fascinated tribe. by these people. Uh, I'd, I'd never met a tribe like that. And like I said, they had a murderous uh, reputation. The interesting thing is about a couple months after we got back, I read an article in uh, Scientific American, of all things, and uh, it said that... Uh, the Afar, the same Afar people that we were with, had led a group up the volcano. They stayed at the summit just like we had. But in the middle of the night, they were pulled out of these grass huts, and they were summarily executed. And they let one man go off into the desert, hopefully to tell his story, and he wandered until someone found him. What? Ethiopian army picked him up. Yeah. They murdered all these people. And the Afar National Democratic Front... Uh, uh, which is an actual movement, claimed uh, the, uh, that they made that execution of those people. But these are the exact same people who took us up the mountain. Did they give a reason for the execution? No, no. So that... Well, it's just to maintain their, like, crazy stat, like, we're nuts? <laughs> I have no idea. But the thing is, when you go on an expedition like this, you never know if you're going to come back alive. And that's just a fact. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's not like, no, I don't have a death wish. I don't want to die. But uh, at the same time, how can I not go on something like that, you know? And yeah. That's crazy. So I, what, the, 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 these are just tourists? Do you think they pissed them off or what? What do you think? I, like, when you were up there with them, did you get the sense that these guys were, were crazy murderers? Like, no, but uh, there was some shooting the next morning. And we didn't know if they were actually shooting at us or not. That's, that's why we... are shooting off into the desert, maybe. Yeah, maybe. They could have been shooting at us. They could have killed us up there, and nobody would have ever known the difference. But you had the gunmen with you, right? Yeah. They but, were shooting? Where were they? Were they always with you, or did they well, kind of like don't, go off every once in a while? Well, or? see, I was lagging way behind because I couldn't breathe, and everybody else was on the trail spread out over a long, long area of desert. Huh. So I don't know. I mean, my gunmen left me on the on the way back he he got way ahead of me this is like it's done i got him to the top of the mountain now. yeah now they had our money they could have killed us they could have left us there no one would have known it i mean i would i would like to think that the u.s government would come and 
sort things out later, right? Well, I, I wouldn't have that much faith in my government doing that. What, uh, what, that, that is an interesting, do you know what national, these people that got killed up there, what was it, a couple months later? Oh, they were mixed trekkers from several countries. Um, the article mentioned where they were all from. I would say three or four countries were involved. It was just a group of trekkers, and, and there were quite a few going in at that time. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, this one group got singled out and were murdered. Huh. Who knows why? That's nuts. That's why they call it adventure. <laughs> I'd say. So, you know, it reminds me of this, this group um, that I heard about. They're on an island in the Indian Ocean. Have you heard about this? Yes, tribe? I have. Yes, I, I think have. it's the Sentinelese or something like that. Um, off the coast of <laughs> India, I believe. Yeah, and they, they've been isolated for forever. Yeah. As far as any, and, and anytime anybody comes near that island, they're hyper aggressive. You land there, you get killed, or they try to kill you. That's self-preservation. The, the, these people, I mean, wherever white contact has been made in the developing country, the people have suffered for it. The indigenous people have suffered for it. First of all, we bring diseases their immune systems can't handle. Uh -huh. uh, I mean, look what happened in Canada with the Hudson Bay Company. They wiped out half the country when they came in. Yeah. So th that's one reason these people on islands like that don't let people in. So what do you think the future is for, for that tribe? Because um, you're right. Since the last time that, that, that tribe, well, not the tribe in, in Ethiopia, right? They, right? they seem to be fairly in contact with, re with the outside world. Yes, they are. But like, you know, they got hand grenades and guns. Yes. But this other tribe, and, and, and you haven't done any research on, on them, I don't think, the, the Sentinelese no. in, in the Indian Ocean, they haven't had contact for hundreds of years, right. if not more. There's a lot of pandemics that have passed, a lot of really deadly stuff that right. theoretically they have no immunity to. So what, what do you think the future is for a tribe like that? Because you've done a lot of research on, on these, you know, the, these isolated tribes. Like, how... What happens to that? I think at some point, the government will just go in and take over and, and wipe them out. That's been the history. Of like wipe them out as in they show up and a disease takes over? or wipe Either them out. that or force them into a, a, you know, living off the government, which will kill them off quickly enough, you know, like we did to the American Indian. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's the history of, of white exploration around the world. But you, you've... You've seen a lot of tribes that are still pretty isolated to this day, right? I hope they are isolated enough that COVID passes them by because they don't have modern medicine. Uh, if they get sick, they think there's an evil spirit in them. Mm -hmm. They'll go to the witch doctor or they'll go to their shaman and, and they'll perform a ceremony. And if they die, they die. That's just life and they accept that. So, so you've seen some of that... I don't know what it, what is it called bush medicine or a lot yeah. a lot of it yeah um, do you think in, like obviously some of it is, is complete nonsense right I mean not to them to them it's their their culture their religion but in terms of like scientific medicine in terms of what works and what what is effective there's a lot that's just nonsense right like you're gonna wave a wave a ceremonial bone over someone that's not gonna help with COVID. No, right. it, it, but there's it's other not. stuff that might, and that, that's kind of what I'm interested in. Is, is there anything that you've seen that they practice that you think that probably has a therapeutic value to it? 
in East Africa, the Maasai, I spent a lot of time uh, learning about herbs and plants from them. And they showed me medicinal plants and what they do and how they work. Uh, if you think about it, almost every medicine on earth today originated in the Amazon rainforest. And I think the cures for all of the, the world's ills are still out there to be discovered. Yeah, it's a big place to Yeah, if we, if we don't burn it down first, but you know. Yeah. But that's where medicine originated. The world's medicine originated in the Amazon. Yeah. And most of these indigenous people in the middle of nowhere know medicines that work for them. But then again, even the stuff that would be called nonsense, if they believe in it, uh, belief is a powerful thing. That is true. I, I, I saw healers in Peru running guinea pigs over people to suck cancer out of them. And these people on their deathbeds got up and walked out because they believed. That's true. So There's lots of stories of that. And, and you know, they're, they're, you know, just if you think about it, if, if you're a complete skeptic, if you're... If you, if you have some sort of illness that you perceive as uh, fatal or that, that it's going to end your life, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to get depressed, and depression is not going to help recovery. Right. right? right. So, you know, I, I think even the, the harshest skeptic of, you know, the, this bush medicine can, can admit that, you know, there's a value to it if, if they perceive that this is helpful it's actually going to be because they're not going to be depressed and, and, right. and that could be a major factor in, in their recovery. Yeah. Huh. And this, this kind of stuff is what you cover in your books? Uh, a lot of it. Things? Yeah. Yeah. My, my books are my personal narratives of my interaction with the people in the places I've been. But the motivation is to make the world aware of some of these people that aren't going to be around forever, particularly those that don't have a written language. And, uh, if, if my stories give them a small voice, then I've done something good. And that's all I can do for it, you know? So, 10 years later, where do you think this tribe in Ethiopia is at? Hmm. <laughs> the, these murderous... Well, I know they're still there because every now and then I, uh, I, I see photos from that area and I read stories about it. Uh -huh. uh, I don't think they're going anywhere. The, they're probably taking more tourists in at this point, for all I know. I mean, it, it certainly beats digging salt under a 120-degree sun. Sure. Uh, what, did you, what did you guys pay for your expedition? Do you know? Oh, I don't. It, it wasn't much. It was like $100 each to, to, for them to lead us up and down the volcano. Not a day. $100 flat for this. Yeah, yeah, at the time. Huh. That, well, 10 years ago, right? Yeah, and in the middle of the Ethiopian desert, that's quite a chunk of money. Yeah. <laughs> Except they have to go into a city before it's any good. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, and did you find that, how, how did they integrate when they were in town, so to speak? Did you see any? Never saw return? any. No, I never saw them in town. I, uh, no. I wasn't there that long. That, that whole trip was six days, in and out. It was yeah. hit and run, yeah. The interesting thing is, uh, since it was scientists from... Uh, JPL, I assumed it was a NASA-sanctioned journey. Yeah. When we got to Addis Ababa, I found out that NASA told them that it was too dangerous, and they were on their own. We were on our own. So, <laughs> so we were, Rosalie just decided to, yeah. let's, let's keep going. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not sorry. It was a wonderful trip. I'd do it again in a minute. And Rosalie's a good friend to this day. 
we're, we're in touch. And she's she's great. We we would love to have her in here to do do one of these interviews. Huh? I mean, she's been to the club tons of times and and given numerous presentations. Absolutely, she has. But again, another plug, Rosalie. If you're watching this, I'm sure you will. We want you in here. Um, so expedition number three. This was more recent. I think three years ago, four at the most. I've lost track. So 2016, 2017, something like was... that. Yeah, Western Tanzania. Um, okay, I'll, I'll start at the whole beginning. If if you remember the old movie Gods Must Be Crazy, those people speak a Khoisan click language. Those are the San people of Namibia, okay. and they talk like their whole dialect. They are, they have other languages, but they speak click when they're by themselves. That's their that's so no one can understand them. Okay. About four hundred years ago, part of them broke off migrated east where they ended up in western Tanzania as the Hadzabe people. The Hadzabe people. Hadzabe. And they still speak that click language. So I was fascinated by these guys because I heard they were actual cavemen. Now okay. there's, there's about 3,000 Hadzabe in western Tanzania surrounded by 300,000 Maasai. Hmm. So the Hadzabe are very I hate the word primitive, but I can't come up with a better one at this point. But they're definitely an ethnic minority. Yes, they are. I think we have a picture of, of these cave people, right? Yes, it, it, it's so in there. So context? Yeah, and it's also the cover of my last book. Right. So anyway, uh, I wanted to see these guys. Out of these 3,000 yeah, people... Is. So this is, this is you with them in front, the right. Hasabe. Yeah, that's me with my homies. And those dogs, are those... Those are good-looking dogs. Uh, they, uh, these tribes, a lot of these tribes have dogs, but they're not pets. They're just there. They, they travel with them. Huh. The dogs fend for themselves. Huh. Uh, they don't feed them. They don't water them. There's always dogs around. Interesting. So anyway, I, uh, I wanted to go see, out of these 3,000, I heard there were 300 of them that were still hunter-gatherers that did not assimilate into the modern world. I wanted to see them. Uh, we drove through the night from where I was staying in a heavy rainstorm, which happened to be to my advantage because uh, they're nomadic, and the driver had no idea where they would be. He took me to a big field in a general area, and he pointed which way I should go. Who were you with on this one? Uh, on this, it was me. Just, just you? I had a driver, but he dropped me off. And a field in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And he pointed, and I wandered for a while, and I, I found a, well, I found a tree hung with skulls and spears and bows and arrows. Must that be was, in the right spot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I ran into these guys. I, I found them. I climbed over this ridge, and in a cave, huddled around a little fire, are these guys wearing baboon skins. I mean, these were cavemen. So I'm just trying to picture this scene. So Right there. That's <laughs> Yeah, and this, this is so... From their perspective, so a driver drops you off in the middle of a field. Yeah. And then you wander around, and then you wander into this cave, and these people are on a fire, and you're, you're like, hey, well, how's it going? They have trekkers. There are trekkers that go in there. I had to get a, a permit to go into their land. Okay. And uh, like I said, though, uh, they are so nomadic that if they kill a large animal, the entire clan will relocate to it rather than bring it back to where they're at. Since it had been raining all night long, they had actually made some shelters out of uh, 
elephant grafts. They had bent the tops and tied them together to make very primitive little shelters. Mm -hmm. And that's what led me to them. I saw these grass shelters they had built during the heavy rains. So when I found them, they were huddled around this little fire. And they really ignored me at first. So I just walked up and started taking photos. I figured if they don't want it, they'll tell me at some point. So they motioned for me to come over and they put out the little fire they had going and they made a second fire, but they wanted to make sure, I mean, they're, they're motioning for me to come in and look real close. They made a second fire using friction. Wow. And then they motioned for me, they put out the second fire and they motioned for me to do it. So I'm being tested before I can even get in there. So I managed after several tries to make a very small fire using friction. I thought, okay. Now is this, was this like with the, with the bow? Yeah, they put a bush knife on the ground to reflect heat and a little tinder and they had a, a, a block of wood with a hole in it and a long, thin uh, branch that, you know, back and forth, back and forth until you got a flame. So we did it. And uh, passed the test. Great, you know, like Tom Hanks, I have made fire. Right. Uh, so I thought, this is great, I passed the test. Then they bring out a pipe. And they start passing around this homemade ganja. And I did not, I mean, I, I wasn't there to get stoned, I was there to observe. Uh -huh. But if I didn't smoke with them, there's no way I'm going to get in. And by the yeah, way, this makes them, makes them nervous, right? This happens with a lot of tribes. That, that is the entree to a lot of remote tribes is smoking with them. So anyway... What were you guys smoking? Well, it was whatever they grow there, their homemade ganja. It was powerful. I mean, I, I was wrecked. Some, some type of marijuana. Yes, and it was in a bone pipe. Okay, so... And it was good. Yeah, and I was just blasted at this point. <laughs> and so... In a cave. In a cave. Is your driver coming back? or? Uh, he was supposed to pick me up much later. Like that day or like much later in the week? Um, that, that day he was supposed to pick me up and I was going to go back again. Okay. But this first day was just one day. That was to introduce me to people. So, um, so after I got stoned, I'm hoping that I can sit down and talk with these guys. No, they handed me a bow and arrow at that point. You're going to go hunting. A lethal weapon <laughs> when I'm higher than a kite. They wanted to see me shoot, so I embedded an arrow in a tree. And after that, it was like, okay, let's go. We're going to go hunt. And they took off like rabbits. I was on my own within 10 seconds. I couldn't keep up with these guys. The way I found them was the tracks in the mud from the heavy rains the and night you're just before. like, oh, man, like I thought we were going to hang out by the fire that I made. Yeah, and I wanted to be there to witness a kill, whatever it was. So I'm following these guys, but I have no idea where they're at. They're silent. You don't know what you're hunting. No. You don't know where everybody went. No. Right. And you're in the middle of the yeah. woods or jungle or... Uh, it was heavy forest. Heavy forest. But you did have a, a, a bow and arrow. Not at that point. I didn't carry oh, okay. it. I didn't take it with me. I, ha I had a very heavy camera bag. I couldn't have managed a bow and arrow, and I wasn't going to kill anything anyway. Okay. I was there to document things. All right. So every now and then, one of them would pop out of the bushes, and he would give me a hand signal. Go this way. Go that way. So they're keeping track of me, and they're, they're directing me. And I thought, this is cool. Okay, I'm fine with this. Then there's this long period of silence, and I don't see anybody, but all of a sudden there's this big commotion in the bushes, and this enraged baboon breaks cover about as far away from me as those chairs over there. And he was angry, and a baboon can kill a man easily. 
And you know, he's showing his fangs and he's pounding his fists. And before I even have time to react, he's on the ground with two arrows in him, twitching from neurotoxin that is killing him. And I, only then did I realize there was a Hadzabi on either side of me with another arrow knocked in their bow. They had me covered the entire time. And they had, it, it, th this is all dawning on me gradually, because my yeah, heart I, is racing. I think I see your part in this hunt. Yeah, and you, I'm, you, I'm... You did play a key role in this hunt. I did, and I was, you know, I was so emotional, I was shaking. I was angry, I was scared. I had just survived what could have been a fatal an wild animal attack. And then it occurred to me after several minutes that they had set me up and used me as bait for this baboon to draw. They knew where the baboon was. They didn't want to go into the thicket and get him. They wanted it to come out and attack me, which it did. So these <laughs> cavemen set me up. Did they, did they bust out the pipe again and be like, thanks, man, here you go? <laughs> well, first of all, they decapitated the animal and field dressed it, and they smeared my face with blood to show I was part of the hunt. And then... Uh, did they smear their faces with blood? No. No, I mean, they, were all, they were all hunters. I was the novice. Okay. But, uh, you know, they almost <laughs> killed me. The least they could do is make me part of the hunt. Okay. So, yeah, we went back to their cave, and they threw this bloody carcass on an open fire, and it seared it. And I had to eat a strip of baboon, the first piece, which was stringy and tough and tasteless. But uh, that was it. And uh, that's the photo I took just before I left these guys, finally. And that story ended a couple months later in um, a paper that came out, oh God, I don't remember the year, but it was a DNA study put out by Stanford University that claims, and I don't know if this is a fact or not, that uh, this particular hunter-gatherer group of Hadzabes is one of three distinct genetic groups from which all of mankind is descended. Wow. So if that is true, uh, I had been used as bait on a baboon hunt by my own ancestors. Wow. That's one hell of an adventure right there. That was a big one. So That was what made that book happen. That <laughs> book is all about that particular... Uh, not that particular one. It, it's, they're both collections of stories. Okay. Um, the, this book has 32 stories. This one has 26. But they're all similar stories. Um, the, the things that I have had happen to me around the world like that. Now, I'm wondering, we, we got three pretty phenomenal stories tonight. Are those three run-of-the-mill stories? No, they were a little more extreme than most. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not always out there on the edge but of the there's, envelope. there's still some good ones in there. Oh, yeah. That people should pick up that book. Uh, there's some very good ones. There's some from Asia. There's some from uh, South America. Yeah, it, it's from all over. It's just these particular ones happened in Africa. So when you started this trip... What did you, you, you went out there to find this particular group of people, right? You had heard that um, a tribe migrated east. I was, I was already... They spoke the same language. I was already... I was, in, uh, I was in Nairobi on a safari. And then I took a flight into Tanzania af after I had done all this other stuff. Uh, in fact, I went to do a story on the carnivore restaurant which is a very famous place there where they only serve uh, wild game. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and I did a you story. You were doing a story for, for who? For an in-flight magazine. Okay. I, I used to work for a lot of African in-flight magazines. Interesting. Most of them have gone under due to multiple crashes. 
<laughs> crashes in yeah. uh, the market or no or crashes, crashes crashing airplanes crashes. yeah four different airlines I worked for all crashed and went out of business uh, I've I work for one at this point Air Seychelles huh. um, but yeah I, I used to work for a lot of those I, I wrote for United Airlines a lot so but okay so back to back to the interesting part but yeah you were doing a story on the carnivore restaurant. the carnivore restaurant in Nairobi and this is a restaurant that only serves wild game yeah are and they, they dishes or is it just is it a purist thing where it's like you get a plate of meat and that's it no uh they work with the uh, fish and game or whatever their equivalent is there uh right. they monitor the herds and if they if they sink below a certain number they take that meat off the menu they place it with something else and uh, they they call the herds to try and keep them steady. So they're very regulated and they're very responsible. Very regulated, very responsible, and they have a great reputation. They're, they're one of the best restaurants in all of Africa. So I was doing that, and then when I left that, I flew into Tanzania to see these people. So that's how it started, and how did you, you had no idea that they were going to get you stoned and walk you out into the I had no idea. No, I thought baboon hunt. No, I'll walk in and you know they'll they'll say, hey, you know, they'll pose for my camera and we'll sit around the fire and talk. The rest was all <laughs> a bonus, if you want to call it that. Yeah, a bonus. A bonus. Oh, near oh. a near death bonus. That's crazy. What an adventure. That's yeah. the best one I've heard in a while. Okay, good. I hope so. <laughs> so um these two books are available on Amazon, right? Uh, or, or you could come into the club if, if we ever reopen and pick them up here. They're on our bookshelf, right? They are. This book, I would ask people if they want it, go through lulu.com because thanks to a, a very shady accounting uh, person, I get very little money if it's bought off of Amazon. Uh-oh. <laughs> However, baboons for lunch, I get... Royalties from Amazon, yes. So, Andy, so. we need to post a link uh, to this book on Lulu and um, Baboons for Lunch on Amazon. Andy's got it. Okay. Is there anything else you want to plug while you're here? Nope. So, <laughs> we do a little Q&A session. We mentioned at the beginning. I'm sure that there's numerous questions that came up in the chat this time around. Andy, we got some questions there? Oh, you don't have a mic, do you? No. Just yell at me, and I'll... Uh, I'll turn it back around. I don't think that one's connected. How did your wife lose her eye, and is it permanent? Yes. How did your wife lose her eye, and is it permanent? She had a detached retina. It, it was reattached surgically, but it healed with a flap in the middle, and they couldn't operate on it after that. It was too delicate. So she has... Uh, it, it created double vision, which was giving her migraine headaches. Hmm. So she's seeing double in one eye and good vision in the other eye. So she went to a specialist and learned how to train her brain only to look out of her good eye. And she wears a blacked out uh, lens in her glasses now for that. Oh, interesting. It's permanent, but she functions fine without it. And she can still look through that other eye. It's just... She gets light and she has peripheral vision. That's why she's kept the eye. Ah. Yeah. That makes sense. But, uh, yeah. What else do we have, Andy? Would you share some stories about your whale playing trips in San Ignacio Lagoon? You uh, did some whale? For 20 years, I worked as a naturalist and guide in the gray whale nursery of San Ignacio Lagoon in Baja. Uh, I retired this year after 20 years. So there's that nursery. Yeah. 
that breeds gray whales in Baja? Well, they're born along the coast here during the migration from Alaska. Okay. Most of them are born here. When they get down to that lagoon, that's where they learn how to become a whale because gray whales are born without any natural instinct. They have to be taught everything from how to breathe, to eat, to swim. So their mothers take them into this heavily salinic lagoon and they teach them how to be whales. And for 20 years, I've worked down there every season, which is, was December through April, where I take people out in little boats and we interact with these animals on the water. 40-ton wild animals that we pet. We scratch their tongues. They bring their babies up to us. Um, mothers put them on their stomachs and bring them to the boat. And wow. We live in solar-powered cabins out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, used to guide people uh, up into the Higantan Mountains on uh, mules at the end of these trips to see painted caves that are thousands of years old. But the company stopped doing that. And the last several years have just been whale trips down to the lagoon and back. But these whale trips, they're still running, even though... Oh, they're not. running, yeah. I just left the company. Uh, I, I just couldn't... I got tired of guiding. Yeah. You know, there's always some, you know what, in the crowd that you don't want to deal with, <laughs> and I, I got tired of dealing with them. Now I go down there on my own uh, in the future. Wow, that, I, I'd love to do that trip. And it's so well, you know, if anybody's interested in going, they can get in touch with me. I'll probably go next year in February or March. But, uh, and do if, you dive when you do this, or do no, you from the boat? No, you can't dive in the water during the whales, uh, when the whales are there. For one thing, there's no visibility. It's a very murky lagoon. It's only 100 feet deep at the most, mm -hmm. and a lot of it is much shallower. Uh, and if you got in the water with these animals, they disappear. They get spooked. But this is the only place on Earth where wild animals in their natural habitat routinely seek out human contact. Huh. If you think about that, that's an amazing statement, but it's true. That does sound like an awesome trip. We're in 20-foot boats with 40-foot whales that weigh 40 to 45 tons. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. All right, what else we got in the chat, Andy? How do you approach a tribe for the first time? Do you have a liaison? Yes, absolutely. I, you can't just walk into these places Well, I don't think everybody heard the question first. That, oh. The question was, um, how do you approach these tribes? Do you have some sort of guide, liaison, or introduction? Yes, you, you can't just walk into them. Uh, thanks to this club and the Explorers Club, I have a worldwide network of people I can call on. And I'll say, you know, I want to go here and see these people, and I'll, I'll contact members of both of these organizations and say, who knows somebody there that can make an entree? Because they have to go in and say, this guy wants to come out, and he wants to do this, and he wants to do that. Because if I walked into a remote village by myself, the people would either disappear or I'd get an arrow in the back. It's that yeah. simple. Because it did, when, when we were talking, it did kind of seem like you did just uh, jump into it. So, so the three we talked about, first, nomadic tribes uh -huh. crossing the Sahara, the blue people, right? Right. But all those nomadic tribes, had someone had already like kind of prepped them. They'd, they'd been there before and be like, hey, well, the, the Pierre and Jim are going to come we, we in a couple weeks, maybe. We showed up at the Afar village, knowing that they were willing to uh, take people up to the volcano for a price. Okay. We had read all about that. So that was our first actual contact with those people. So you knew ahead of time that it was something right. that they did. So you showed up to the village and, and yeah. they indeed did that. And for the last group here with the Hadzabi people, I, like I said, I had to get a government permit. Uh, trekkers do go into that area, so they knew somebody was coming. Um, but that was it. There so was presumably when you got the permit, someone from the government 
like indicated to, to yeah. the tribe that like, hey, we gave some dude a permit. It, it, it had a, a three-day lifespan on it. Okay. Okay, so they knew somebody was going to come within those three days. Hmm. That's all they knew about me. Interesting. All right, we got one more question. What do we got? Can you talk about your trip along the Mekong with Pierre looking for old temples from old photos? Ah, so the yes. Mekong, you, you took a trip with Pierre Odier. I made that trip twice. Up the Mekong. My wife and I went up the Mekong from the South China Sea into Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and spent two months photographing around there, and then I lost, my, I lost all my images. Uh, I, dropped, I dropped my photo card into the crack of an ancient ruined temple. And that's a whole story there about how these people moved a temple around to try and get my card back. So a year later, <laughs> I applied through Pierre's, uh, uh, what do you call it, foundation, Adventurer's Foundation. I applied for a grant to go back and recreate that trip. I wanted to recover those photos. And Pierre said, you know, I'd like to go back there because he had bought all these glass plate negatives shot around Angkor Wat around 1900. Magnificent mm -hmm. stuff. And what he wanted to do was go back and find those same exact spots and photograph them how they look today. So he agreed to help me go up the Mekong and get my photos back, and I agreed to help go into Cambodia with him to get the photos he wanted. That's how that came about. Wow. I wonder if someone's going to you know, find that card in that temple like 300 years from now. It's a time capsule. <laughs> be like, what's this? Oh, I know what that is. That's when people used to store images on. Yes. Or if they'll even know how to plug it in. I had some great shots on that thing. Yeah. It, it, it broke my heart. But I, I. How did the kid. Okay. Mm, I got to ask you this. You got the little card, right? Yeah. How did that fall out in, and get. And go Legends of the Hidden Temple down, down uh, cracks. Um, imagine a 2,000-year-old temple that is crumbled and it, it's all big tumbled blocks of granite. Uh -huh. And I'm standing on top of a mountain of this stuff. I take my one photo card out of my camera, which was like 60 gigs, so I only had one with me. <laughs> and I'm moving it to another camera, and I drop uh. it. It hits this boulder, and it slides down into a crack, and it's gone. Yeah. You're talking big granite slabs of I hundreds of pounds. Cards for every single one of your cameras. Oh, now, I, huh? I have so many. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Each camera has its own card, right? Yeah. So you don't have to swap. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for for being with us here, Jim. Uh, this is a great talk. Fantastic stories, and I'm definitely gonna. Which book do you think I should read first? Baboons for lunch or um, Vanishing Tales from? Ancient I'll read them in order, and that way you'll see how much better a writer I have become since that book. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. All right. Well, thank you. We appreciate having you here tonight. So for those people watching, uh, here every Thursday next week, who do we have next week? Andy? Kevin Lee. We have Kevin Lee coming in to talk about uh, some of his adventures. Excellent. So, I'll be watching. Um, everybody probably knows Kevin Lee as um, the guy who photographs Nudibranx. But he is also a well-traveled individual, and uh, he's going to have some great stories for us next week. So if you like this and the other interviews we've done, please subscribe to our channel. That helps us out. And uh, we'll see you guys next week right here at the Adventures Club at 745. See you later.